Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Talib Kweli on Vibrate Higher. First, wanted to let you know that you can check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And for the latest on this show, check us out on social media. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Books on Pod. Hey, this is Mike Ayers, author of One Last Song, Conversations on Life, Death, and Music. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Hello, readers. Talib Kweli is a world-renowned hip-hop artist whose presence has been heard as one half of Blackstar, the main MC for Reflection Eternal, and as a solo act. He's also now a published author with his new memoir out now. It's called Vibrate Higher, A Rap Story. Talib, thank you for the time. How you doing today? I'm pretty good. I had a long night last night. I'm looking forward to a positive and prosperous day today. So you write early on in this book that this book is not the truth. It's not a story of how a little ghetto boy rises above all adversity to beat the odds and then reconcile with his past. It's not a rallying cry for real hip-hop, nor a guidebook on how to be more conscious in the way that you live. It's also not a manifesto handed down from the tops of the mountain. What is it then? It's just my perspective, and perspective is my truth. That term, my truth, has a lot of traction these days. And I can be very critical of that term because sometimes people replace their own personal truths with the truth. And so the truth is the third side of the story. You have my side, you have your side, and now you have the truth. I do believe in certain inalienable truths. I do believe in there are certain truths that there are things that sound subjective but are absolutely true. Like when you say Stevie Wonder is one of the greatest musicians of all time. Well, that's an absolute truth, even though music tastes can be subjective. So when I set out to write the book, I want to be clear that I'm not trying to say this is how people should live. This is not a referendum on hip hop. This is not like a tablet up to being handed down from the guys on how to live. This is just simply my perspective. Your perspective includes sharing your thoughts on vibrations. Obviously, the book title does reference vibrations with the word vibrate. Why are you fascinated with vibrations? Because I'm a musician. I create vibrations for a living, literally and figuratively. When musicians see music as colors, we see the vibe. And when when you create the right music, you create the right vibe in a room. My entire existence as an artist, my whole career has been about going into a room or a space and creating the right vibe for that space. You grew up in and around NYC. How did Run DMC help provide you with your first real hip-hop rebel moment? I'm glad you asked that because I didn't talk about Run DMC that much in the book. Somebody just sent me a picture of DMC holding my book. And um, he's very excited about the book and just the legacy Run. You know, I don't know those guys very well. I know DMC better than Run. The one time I met Run, he's sort of like the first best MC. One time I met Run, he showed me a lot of love. GM Master J, of course, for me interviewing Onyx and me interviewing Ja Rule on a podcast. GM Master J name keeps coming up and what he did for hip hop was so important. Run DMC was the first rap group that I liked for real. Well, I guess I did write about them. I guess I wrote about UB Illin. I forgot I wrote about UB Illin. So yeah, UB Illin was a Run DMC record that had a huge impact on me. My mother was an English professor. The idea that you can name a record UB Illin was just fascinating to me because my mother would always correct my English. (laughs) 
Your first rhymes, written at the age of 13, were about girls and rapping, and you point out something very poignant that a lot of rappers start out by rhyming about rapping. Why is that? Because hip-hop is an underground, subversive culture. And in order to keep it underground, to keep the rudiments pure, we had to be the guardians of our culture. So hip-hop artists and people who participate in hip-hop what we call real hip hop, almost become obsessive about being the gatekeepers or the guardians of our culture. And so before hip hop went mainstream, a lot of hip hop was making sure that no interlopers and no culture vultures came in the culture. And so it was a lot of just calling people out, like, you're not down by law. You don't really do this. You don't really be at the Fever. You don't really be at the Roxy. You don't really be at Land Quarters. You don't really be in the park jams. You're not really doing this. And so that sort of attitude became prevalent in the lyrics. And a lot of the early hip-hop songs and a lot of hip-hop songs that are respected by true hip-hop fans are people talking about just how great hip-hop is and how we have to protect this culture. And how, as MCs, we are better than the MC who does not protect the culture. Starting with high school and continuing into college, school was a bit of a roller coaster ride for you. You turned things around enough in high school that you're able to earn admission into NYU's Tisch School of the Arts in their experimental theater program. What did you learn in that program that would ultimately help you on stage as a musician? Man, the craft of acting. I don't think people who watch movies and television understand how involved it is and how painful it is and how hard it is. You have to really be in an emotionally stable place to be an actor for a living. And so I just learned how to transfer my emotions into my art. Blocking is very important. Blocking is very important to my stage show. Just knowing where to stand on stage. The tactic of sense memory. Some actors create a backstory for their character, create a sort of sense memory so they could draw from that. Just doing that in songwriting was very helpful. And... Every show is like a movie, but I am the director and I'm telling my own story. And so I just employ as many tactics that I've learned from acting as possible. How did Nas' release of Illmatic in 1994 change how you approached your own music? Man, Nas changed how everybody approached music. Illmatic was so pure and so raw, so vital and so necessary. Nas was working with the best producers at the time, the best hip-hop producers at the time, but he sort of was giving the perspective of the reluctant observer from the project window. Watching Nas go from reluctant observer to active participant in some of the stuff that he was rhyming about was interesting to me. And so Nas was always like a litmus test for what a conscious MC could get away with doing. Why was 1995 the most life-changing year for you up to that point? Uh, yeah, it was one of the most life-changing years for me. It still is. 1995, I sold my oats, and I took a Greyhound bus to California. I ingratiated myself within California and Los Angeles and Bay Area hip-hop scenes, and I learned a lot about those guys, from the whole Project Blow crew to the whole Living Legends Bay Area, Hobo Junction crew, Souls of Mischief and all them. And um, living on my own in California was a new thing. I went to court that year for the first time, got arrested for arguing with a cop in Cincinnati, had to go back to Ohio and go to court. It was just like, you know, that was like a coming of age. It's like, um, you know, if they had to make a movie about my childhood, it would be that year, that summer. The summer of 95 was a very interesting summer for me. You also met a woman in July of 1995 named Darcel. A year later, she had your son, Amani Fella Green. 
what did fatherhood do to you as a person? I put a battery in my back. It inspired me greatly as an artist. My greatest inspiration are my children. I have three now. Amani was my first. Having to take care of a whole person made me make some crucial decisions and gave myself some ultimatums. I was like, I either got to succeed at this rap thing or I have to get a regular job. And so that forced me to be successful as a hip hop artist. And you had a pivotal moment in your career in music in February of 1996. What happened at that time that made you realize that you would in fact make a career out of rapping? In February 1996, I performed at Lyris' Lounge at SOB's, hosted by Q-Tip. I had started working with High Tech by that time. High Tech had taken the Greyhound bus from Cincinnati to New York, carrying that big MPC 60 or 3000. I'm not sure if we were on the 3000 by then, but he started out with the MPC 60. And SOB's is a storied venue. It's a venue that I've seen a lot of great performances at. If you're a hip-hop artist, it's likely that one of your first great shows in the industry was at SOB's. And um, I did very well that night. Rod Digger was on the bill. My man Problems was on the bill. But I stood out that night. People had heard me rhyme, and I was good enough to get on the bill. But performing over those raw, straight-from-the-MPC high-tech tracks, that gave people a different perspective of what I did. And Q-Tip, who was... My good friend right now, but, you know, is my hero, gave me a very good compliment that night. Not long after that, you explode onto the national scene with what you and Yasin Bey, a.k.a. Most Def, did with Black Star. Why did you guys work so well together creatively? Yasin Bey, we share a lot of similar political beliefs. We share a lot of beliefs about art and what art represents we come from the same place in the world. He's older than me, but we're similar in age. But why Blackstar worked is because there's things that Yasin does, even though he reminds me of myself as an MC subject and content-wise and intention-wise, there's things that he does that I wish I could do better. And that's take high-minded concepts and break them down into fairly simple rhyme schemes and melodic rhyme schemes. He can sing, he can act, very well. He can, on stage, he's very charismatic. He has a connection with spirituality that I admire. And so the things that I wish I could be better at or that I strive to be better at, I see that in him as an MC. And I, without speaking for him too much, I feel safe to say that he feels the same about me. There's things that as an MC that he would like to be better at that he sees me succeeding at. And so whether it's my song choices and the beats I pick or how wordy I can be or how I break down certain subjects, I think he looks at that as something that he is inspired by. So we inspire each other in equal measure. You've obviously done a ton of great music over time. The one album with Black Star, Reflection Eternal, of course, all the stuff that you've done as a solo artist. Why do you think that Black Star has maintained such a profound impact over time, even decades after you guys uh, initially put out that album? I think timing is everything, and it was a perfect time, a perfect storm. That The world, the industry, the streets, the culture, they needed Black Star. Puffy and what he was doing on the commercial level was so dominant. The shiny suit era was so dominant. The music was getting sleeker and more slick, and people were moving away from vinyl, moving away from that sort of hip-hop that's about preserving the culture. And I think for Yasin and I, we had a finger on the pulse of what was going on in New York City and those underground cultures. And there were a lot of artists doing it, but we were just the most successful at representing that culture. I think joining forces together helped that, but also just 
something as simple as vinyl. The Black Star vinyl, making that look good and making it something that you needed to have in your collection was very important. Vinyl is an instrument in hip-hop. Your next step as a musician from Black Star was Reflection Eternal before eventually doing the solo thing. And you really started to play with a lot of people at that time as well. It's just crazy to read the list of folks that you've uh, had the pleasure of getting on stage with and that they've had the pleasure of working with you as well. Erica Baidu is somebody that I uh, am a bit infatuated with. What did you learn from touring with Erica Baidu uh, back in the 2000s? First of all, Baidu is a gangster. She's one of the best people ever met. She's an icon. I learned how to um, incorporate things around me into the show, things about the culture around me into the show. And she was brilliant at that. And, um, you know, I learned how to be true to myself. Badu is successful because she doesn't follow trends. She only does what Badu wants to do. And um, she's brilliant for that. What was the biggest challenge for you in pivoting from Black Star to Reflection Eternal? That wasn't a challenge at all because High Tech produced most of the Black Star album and Reflection Eternal existed as a group and as a thing before we did Black Star. Black Star musically, if you look at the breakdown of it, is actually me and High Tech added with Yasin Bey, where at least that first Black Star album is. Hmm. He's very much a part of the architect of the sound and he, he was around for all of that. High Tech was it's almost like the third member of the group. Was there a major challenge in going from Reflection Eternal to your solo career? That was a little bit more challenging because I didn't do that because I was focused on that. I became a solo artist because High Tech got busy producing other things. He, he didn't go on the road with me when I went on tour of Badu. Yasin got very busy. I found myself wanting to create and drop music, but my partners weren't in a space to work on music. So it was like, okay, well, I got to eat. And I want to be creative. So my solo career is an invention of necessity. It wasn't like I was pining to be a solo artist. And if you notice, very quickly into my solo career, I, I did a lot of solo records. But later in my career, I started doing collaborations. Diamond D, Ninth Wonder, Mad Libs, Styles P. I'm way more interested in that than I am in myself as a solo artist. Well, on that first album, it also includes some collaborations with Kanye West as a producer. How did he end up a part of things on that first one? Kanye came to my studio before I ever heard of him, looking for Most Def. We were going to record the song Joy from Quality, and Most was late to the session, and Kanye came looking for him. Most was going to get some beats from Kanye. Because Most wasn't there, I got the beats, and one of those beats was Get By. One of them was Good To You. One of them was Gorilla Monsoon Rap. And Kanye and I developed a great relationship from that point on, and I was the first person to take him on tour. That's when we, we really became friends. We became musical partners working on my quality album. But when I took him on tour for the Electric Circus Tour with Common, that's when we really linked up. You also got Dave Chappelle to basically take over the end of that album, speaking of collaborations. And of course, you were among the performers at Chappelle's block party, the legendary block party in 2004. What was it like getting to take part in that? I met Chappelle years before he jumped on the Quality album. I met Chappelle over a couple of different times. But when I was working on the Reflection Eternal album with High Tech, I saw him walking down the street in Greenwich Village, and I invited him to the studio. And it was inviting him to the studio that we really cemented our friendship because he was enamored with the music we were doing. And everyone you see in Block Party was working in Electric Lady on albums at that time. So Block Party was just like, an extension of those earlier Electric Lady sessions. 
And uh, amongst those performers, of course, were the Roots. Black Thought is my favorite MC of all time. How cool is it getting to work with the Roots from time to time, just considering how brilliant they are from the instrumentation to the raps that uh, Black Thought drops? Obviously, you mentioned in the book that Questlove is like your uh, your internet godfather. Just how cool is it to be friends with those dudes? Yeah, I mean, Black Thought is my favorite MC as well. Me and him are born the same day. I consider him my mentor, my OG, but also my peer. I cannot overstate how important the Roots are to my career, from OK Player to everything they've done for me. It's just impossible for me to overstate what the roots mean to me. I feel like I'm a member of the group. That's how much love they show for me. And, um, you know, I love them dudes immensely. Why do you consider Questlove your internet godfather? Because Questlove is the first person who was like, you need to get on Twitter. Questlove is the guy who tries to convince all of us artists who are very analog to step up our digital game. He's always been like that. That's why he created OKPlayer.com. In Chapter 29, you talk about how active you were on Twitter at the time and uh, defending how often you went after people expressing various forms of ignorance. Of course, since that chapter was written, Twitter decided to ban you from life, and I don't necessarily care to get into the details of that. I'm curious, though, have you felt a positive difference since detaching yourself from what my friend so accurately called at one point a virtual bathroom wall, which does include glory holes from time to time? I like that, a virtual bathroom wall. I want to push back a little bit against the way in which you frame the question, because I feel like the way in which you frame the question is easy to make that mistake, but that's part of the reason why people feel gleeful in my suspension from Twitter. I've never, ever, ever went after anybody. That's not what I did. I would post my own opinions and post what's important to me, and people would come after me, and then I would respond. And I think the story surrounding my Twitter experience too often unfairly is like Kuali is a troll that goes after people because I was on there for so long. I was on there so often. I would respond to damn near everything. And I was on there so often that people mistake me responding to people as me going after people. Now, this might sound like cat, but I was planning to distance myself from Twitter before I got suspended. So I almost feel like the suspension was God stepping in and being like, no, 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 you're not going to distance yourself on your own. Let me go ahead and do it for you. I am not angry at Twitter. I'm, I mean, I'm disappointed in them because I enjoyed the experience, but it's their house. They have the right to kick me out for whatever reason. They don't even have to justify it. They don't have to tell me. I disagree with the reason why they kicked me out, but I understand it because what I did to get kicked off of Twitter was definitely technically against the rules. I posted a screenshot of someone threatening to rape my daughter and assault my mother. And I neglected to cut off the phone number of the person who was calling me and making these threats and texting me these threats. So that became, and because people complain about me on Twitter all the time, that became an excuse for Twitter to kick me off. But I will say this, I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed it. I'm still here. You're still interviewing me. And people are not going to be talking about Twitter in 10 years, but they damn sure will still be talking about my output and my work. Well, one of the interesting things about how you used to defend yourself and respond to people who were replying to what you were initially posting is that you were doing so as yourself. And part of the problem with social media and the Internet as a whole, I guess, is just the veil of anonymity that people get to operate under. And they get to say and do these truly ugly, hateful, negative things and not necessarily have to face any sort of consequences for it either. Well, I mean, isn't that what the internet is for, for a lot of people? I mean, I think that's where I do get caught up at, is 
sometimes I expect people to operate with the same level of accountability and transparency that I feel the need to operate under. And because I've put myself out there as a conscious rapper or a positive rapper, right, people will be more pressed to find flaws and holes in what I do. And because this is what happens with conscious artists, people who are not conscious, we sometimes make them uncomfortable whether it's our intention to or not. Just by the nature of what we do, we remind people of what they're not doing positively. And so what people sometimes do is um, they try to overhold us accountable. They be like, well, I can't slack on these bars. Every bar got to be uplifting. Every bar got to be positive. I can't get caught out there, no drama. I can't make a mistake. I can't be a human being because I represent myself as a quote unquote conscious positive artist. I accept that. So my whole thing is, look, I have no problem with you holding me over accountable for every single little thing. I got no issue with that because I asked for it. Right. But I'm going to do the same thing back to you. So if you come to me and you try to hold me accountable because you didn't like a tweet or you didn't like a song lyric or you didn't like that I supported Black Lives Matter, whatever the problem you have with me that you're trying to hold me accountable for, I'm going to defend myself. But I'm also going to turn around and hold you accountable for the things I see you doing. And I think that's where I get into the problem because people are not used to that. I enjoyed you describing several different encounters with Barack Obama when he was president, especially you taking your grandmother to meet him. Uh, Great story. Highly recommend people check the book out for a number of reasons, including that story. Your grandma, who was known as Mama or Toots, passed away a few years ago. What was the most valuable piece of wisdom that she imparted on you before then? Whoa. (laughs) 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 she told me a lot of things the valuable piece of wisdom is to keep your family close always get up with your family your media family spend holidays get with them as much as you can i laughed because i wasn't sure that i should share the most valuable information because i don't want to offend people when she was passing away one of the last things she said to me was and i'm going to paraphrase i'm not going to say exactly what she said but i'm a paraphrase so be careful with falling in love. Be careful with love and attachment. Because she's like, I worked for the bank. She worked all these years and she spent all this time trying to be in these relationships and give her all and give so much love and be in love and be married and do all this. She said when she became an elderly person, she felt like she spent her life trying to please other people. And when she became an elderly person and started traveling more, she started to let go of some of those attachments that she felt like being in love made her hold on to. And I hesitate. I'm being careful how I state that because it could sound harsh. If you haven't lived that life or had not lived certain experiences or if you're someone who's currently head over heels in love, if you're someone who's trying to make a relationship work against the odds right now, I don't want to discourage people from that because love is important too. But Knowing my grandmother and knowing my life, for her to say that to me at that time in my life, it was just, it hit me like a brick. And it was advice that I needed to make sure that I'm taking care of myself and make sure that I'm not just doing things just for other people. That makes total sense to me. I'm curious what her actual words were. If you were paraphrasing to try and be a little bit careful, what did she just straight up say? Fuck love. <laughs> she was, yeah, she was a little bit more blunt than the way okay. I put it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, I don't want to piss people off. You talked about earlier in this conversation that you are a lover of books, have been for a long time. I'm a little bit jealous that when you were younger, you got to work in bookstores. That's something that 
to go back in time. I wish I got to do a little bit more of working at indie bookstores or something like that. So for you as somebody who has obviously accomplished so much and put yourself out there creatively in a variety of ways, was it challenging at all to do so in book form considering the high regard that you hold this medium? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you watched me on Deaf Poetry Jam, I did it twice. And both times I'm extremely nervous, so much that you could see the nervousness on my face and hear it in my voice. And the reason why I was so nervous is because when I started my career, I was running around in the same circles as spoken word artists, but then I became a rapper for a living and I started writing in 16 bars and coming up with hooks and trying to get songs on the radio. And that became, if not more important, just as important as the content of my bars. But then when you're going up against actual writers like Sonia Sanchez and Jessica Camor and people like that, it's like, well, these little rap bars standing up to what these spoken word artists are doing. And I had to check myself and I'm like, wow, did I really dip in my content? And I think the bars that I gave on Deaf Poetry Jam were good enough. But that was a lesson for me that like, wow, okay. As a rapper, I understand the Jay-Z lyric about I dumb down to make dollars. It happens even when you don't mean for it to happen. So me throwing my hat into the literary ring, well, now I'm competing against Richard Wright and James Baldwin and Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou. And this is a whole different set of artists than other rappers. Other rappers I'm running laps around. But when it comes to the literary world, I'm the baby, I'm the novice, I'm the amateur. So I was very nervous. And part of the reason why I finished this book right before Trump got elected, but it took me a long time to even give it to the publisher because I was nervous about whether or not it was good enough. Hmm. One of the last paragraphs of this book, you lay out how different people taught you certain things, including Dave Chappelle teaching you how to live your truth. Now, Dave Chappelle is not only the greatest stand-up comedian of our lifetime, in my opinion, he is also, more importantly, one of the most important humanitarians of our lifetime as well. So how did he teach you how to live your truth? Because Dave is unapologetic about his craft. But just because he's unapologetic and fiercely protective of his craft doesn't mean that he's not a great person. The things that he says in his comedy that are sometimes offensive to people, he's very clear that these are jokes and these are meant to be offensive and shocking and often it's wrong. He's very clear to say, look, I'm not trying to be right on stage. I'm trying to be funny. And there's a huge difference. And I think he's very brave to sort of put himself out there for his fellow comedians. Like Dave says, he can say and do what he wants because he don't have to do the big budget movies. And he's very free. He's a revolutionary. Block Party, you brought Block Party up. That was very important. But just as what I do as an artist, as a rapper, I relate to what Dave does as a comedian. When I think about the community I come from, Like when I think about like a battle rap community, it's not very PC. It's not very politically correct and it's very toxic, but that's do I come out of. And I think that artists need the freedom creatively to be able to jump into those stews, figure out what works for them and what doesn't morally, and then develop the art. I don't think you can speak on it unless you participated in it. And from hanging out with Dave and seeing what happens in the comedy world, I understand why he feels the need to be shocking in order to protect the freedom of speech that comedians need to do their job. I don't agree with every premise of every Dave Chappelle joke, but I'm amazed that he can do that and he can still be Dave Chappelle, the stand-up citizen that he is. I'm currently in his hometown right now. The things he's doing in Yellow Springs, Ohio are amazing. 
And there's pushback from the local people here as well. But history is going to be on the side of Dave Chappelle. Agreed with that. And I look forward to the uh, podcast that you have coming out with he and uh, Yasin on Luminosity. And you mentioned Chappelle in the movies. You and I are obviously both big fans of Half-Baked. You mentioned it in the book. But it was I was curious to learn their initial premise for that movie was to make it more of a dark comedy. And, of course, Hollywood does what Hollywood does, and that's try to yuck it up a little bit more and turn it into more of a Cheech and Chong sort of premise. And, look, it still worked really well. It's a hilarious movie. I'm curious, <laughs> though, what the dark comedy version of Half-Baked would have looked like. Have you ever talked with them about that? This is the first time I've heard the words dark comedy in reference to that. But what I do know is that it's absolutely accurate that what Neil and Dave created is not what came out. And so when I speak to Dave about my love for Half-Baked, it sort of stings because what I fell in love with is not what he intended it to be. But there's enough of him in it. I fell in love with that movie because the movie felt like a document. It felt like a slapstick, ridiculous caricature documentary of what my life was at that time. <laughs> I was a pothead. I was going to bodegas. I was trying to figure out whether or not I should be selling weed in the streets and, you know, all that stuff. That's what I was, when he said, I, I used to buy weed from the dreads of Washington Square Park. I don't fall for that shit anymore. Like that was a very, <laughs> that's, like, that's, that's like, are you in my head? Do you, do you live my life? You know what I'm saying? And so I didn't really know Dave that well when that movie came out. I, I met him, but I didn't know him. But that movie made me be like, okay, Dave Chappelle is a genius. But when Dave looks back at it, all he sees is what Universal did. Or I, I don't know if it's Universal, but all he sees is what I guess it was Warner Brothers. There's yeah. a lot of like Bugs Bunny stuff in there, including some of the uh, the music where there it it really is slapsticky at times. Now, have you ever had a uh, Scarface moment where you have to go fuck you, fuck you, fuck you? You're cool. I'm out. All the time. All the time. Shout out to Guillermo Diaz. I was just watching the reruns of Chappelle's show when he's like, wrap it up, B. Like he, <laughs> he, 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 he bodied that wrap it up skit. He bodied Cuban B. The fact that his character's name is Cuban B is because he's a Cuban from New York that calls everybody B. That's just such a New York <laughs> reference. He's like, yo, B, what up, B? His introduction in that movie is, he goes, I'm Cuban B. And then the great Clarence Williams says, yeah, Cuban B. <laughs> <laughs> It's so hilarious. Oh, man. All right. Final question, Talib. Chapter six breaks down many of the prime candidates for a reputable top five dead or alive or a person's five favorite MCs of all time. Who's in your top five dead or alive? It's a, like I said, the reason I wrote that chapter is so I wouldn't have to answer this question. <laughs> um, but it's like a revolving door because it changes all the time. That chapter is specifically written as my answer to that question. Because it's like, okay, well, if we're going to talk about top five, well, then for my personal experience and my perspective, because again, it's my perspective. My top five is based on where I grew up, how I grew up, when I grew up. And so based on my perspective, I got to give you the whole history. I got to tell you about how I was listening to Ice Cube and Karis One and what Native Tongues did for me and, and then what Kendrick and J. Cole did for me and how much I love Gene Gray and Pharaoh and what Black Thought means to me. And I have to tell you the whole thing. Well, you said Black Thought may be your number one. So is there somebody else who is for sure on that list too? Well, Black Thought is always on the list because he's the most consistent working MC. But the people who constantly make the list for me are definitely um, Most Def Common, Nas, Jay-Z, Gene Gray, Farrell March, Tupac Biggie, Bun B, Scarface, Ice Cube, 
those are the names that stay on the list. Rakim, Big Daddy Kane. Yeah, Scarface is uh, always on my list as well because he's the Bob Dylan of hip-hop, as you point out in that chapter. He just is such a great storyteller in that medium. Yeah, Miss Hill. Can't forget Miss Hill. Talib, thank you so much for the time today, man. Can't uh, recommend this book enough. It is called Vibrate Higher, a rap story. It's out now. Really appreciate the time today, and uh, thank you for writing this excellent book. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder to check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.